We are up to chapter 2, Mishnah 7, and this is another Mishnah teaching of Hillel. And I think it's it's unique because if you look at the structure or the, or the narrative of the Mishnah, it's very different than every one that we've seen so far uh, for a few different reasons. So let's read it and we'll see what we can learn from it. Also, he saw a skull floating on the surface of the water. Amrullah, he said to it, Because you drowned others, they drowned you. And the end of those who drowned you, Yetufun, will be drowned themselves. So I think this Mishnah is interesting or, or unique for several reasons. First of all, until now, we haven't seen a Mishnah teaching in the ethics of the fathers, in the chapters of fathers, in the Perker Avos, that is based upon an episode. Something happened that spurred a axiom by one of the sages. I hear it's, he sees the skull. It seems like if he hadn't seen the skull, he wouldn't have this teaching. He sees the skull and he's like, okay, you killed someone, therefore you got killed. You drowned someone, therefore you got drowned. And the person who drowned you will himself or herself be drowned as well. So that's the first thing. It's it's odd. In addition, it's also the first time that we've seen in the Mishnah words not written in Hebrew. It's written, in fact, in Aramaic. And as we know, Hillel was from Babylon, and he traveled to Israel, ended up leaving Israel, going back to Babylon, coming back to Israel. And it seems like from this Mishnah that his language that he was most comfortable talking in was Aramaic. Now, at the time, Aramaic was common in Israel and in Babylon. But the rest of the Mishnah is written in, in Hebrew. All Mishnah is written almost exclusively in Hebrew. And here we have this comment of Hillel, and he's saying it in, in Aramaic. Again, it seems like it's not some sort of teaching that he was planning on saying. It was an episode that happened that inspired him to say something that was later put in the Mishnah. So Rashi actually tells us in this Mishnah, in his commentary on this Mishnah, that there are some people or some communities that have a custom to skip this Mishnah. Maybe we could suggest an answer as to why this Mishnah is, is different. Maybe the lesson is, in fact, the episode itself. The idea here, we'll see the idea. The idea is if you do something bad to someone else, that same thing, bad thing that you do to someone else, will happen to you. That's the idea. But it's presented in the form of a story. Maybe we could suggest that the story itself is the lesson. Maybe what the Mishnah is telling us is that we should try to be influenced by the things around us. We should be impressionable. We should be inspired by what we encounter. Hillel saw the skull floating on the water. If we would see that, we would say, oh my gosh, I wonder what happened to this poor chap. Uh, we could try to take it out as a memento, probably not, but we'd, we would, maybe would bury it. But what does Hill do? Hill tries to say, okay, what lesson is there for me? And I think that is really the, the Musser attitude. The Musser attitude is to be impacted by whatever you encounter. He sees the skull and he says, what can I learn from it? And that is the attitude that we maybe are being told about here, more than the lesson itself. We'll talk about the lesson in a bit. But the episode gives us a framework of how he'll operate. He sees something, he says, okay, what happened over here, and what can we learn from it? Last week we had the Parsha, 
the story of the scouts of the spies that Moshe sends to Israel. And immediately preceding that episode is the story of Miriam speaking negatively about Moshe and suffering consequently. And Rashi, in his comment at the beginning of the parasha, tells us why are these two episodes put next to each other? Because these wicked ones, i.e. the scouts, the spies, they saw what happened to Miriam when she spoke ill about her brother, and they didn't take the lesson. They didn't study the Musr inherent in that episode. And therefore, they spoke ill about the land of Israel. And the critical misstep that, that rendered them into wicked ones, according to Rashi, is not the fact that they spoke ill about the land of Israel. Rather, it's the fact that they didn't take the lesson to heart at the time when the lesson was available, when Miriam was being punished for speaking ill against her brother. They didn't take the lesson at the time. And seemingly what it's, what it's telling us is that we should try to train ourselves that whatever we encounter, we should try to view it inwardly and see how we can apply it to our lives. Hillel sees this episode. He sees this floating skull. However, the skull dies. We don't know. He assumes it was murdered. And he says, okay, what, what can I learn from that? A lesson about tit for tat, what goes around, comes around. The commentaries are, are very straightforward about what, what this idea here is. Uh, so the Ramam, for example, tells us there's a principle, however a person acts, that is the way others act to him or her. If you want to figure out the way you're going to be treated, the way you treat others is the way you are going to be treated. So if you do, and this is like divinely guided, if you try to scheme of ways to trip up other people, to have them suffer, or to try to revel in their failures, well, then that exact thing, same thing is happen to you. And if you try to injure others, well, you yourself will be injured. And if you, God forbid, kill others, then you yourself will be killed. That's the idea. And on the flip side, there's also a good component to it. If you do good, if you try to think of how you can help others, then other will think, others will think of how they can help you. And the Ramam understands this in the way maybe the word in English is karma, that the way you behave towards others is the way others will behave to you. But the Ramam understands this as this is affected by God, that the way you behave towards other people is the way God will make sure other people will behave towards you, and also the way God himself will behave towards you. So, for example, the Talmud tells us that if you are easy to forgive others who have done bad to you, God will be easy on you to forgive you when you've done bad things to him. When we want God to forgive us, essentially we're admitting, we're tacitly admitting that we've done wrong. Yom Kippur, we come to God and ask for forgiveness. We're acknowledging that we've done wrong. Yet, we still have the temerity to say, forgive us. How can that be justified? How can you justify saying, I did something bad, I know I'm guilty, but just grant me clemency for no reason. You should have to deal with the consequences of your behavior. Says the Talmud, if you forgive others who have done wrong to you, and all of us are victims of wrongs done to us by others, all of us, and we've all done wrongs to other people as well. If you're willing to forego the time where you're right and they're wrong, if you're willing to forego that and say, you know what, they were wrong, but I forgive them, then God will say, okay, you were wrong, but I forgive you. Again, the same, same thing. If you are willing to overlook when you're right, God will be willing to overlook when he's right and you're wrong. Whereas if someone is very exacting, 
always going to stand for the light of the law. No, I'm right. I'm not giving. I'm not yielding. I'm not giving up an inch. Well, okay. Then that's the that's the manner that they're telling God I want to be treated in. Treat me the same way as I treat others. That's what you're asking. And if you're very exacting in judgment, not willing to yield an inch, then you know what? You're essentially telling God, do the same to me. Treat me also with exacting judgment. Don't yield an inch. And in that instance, it's not going to end well for us. And by the way, even though it's true that all of us have been recipients of wrongs by others, we've wronged God, so to speak, much more frequently than others have wronged us. And therefore, it's a golden opportunity for us to forgive others. We're going to yield in, in one or two or five areas, but that will cause God to yield to us in a million areas. So we'll actually benefit greatly. But the general idea that we see here, and there's many examples for it, that the way someone acts, that's the way they get acted to. Both the way that they're going to be treated by God and the way they're going to be treated by others. And both good and bad. You do good to others. You seem good to others. You think of ways you can help others. And it'll end up boomeranging back towards you. On the flip side, you think of bad and how you can do bad to others. You think ill of others. Then that is the way you're asking God to treat you and the way God will assure that others treat you as well. Now, there's an interesting little problem in this argument. So what's, what's Hillel telling us? Yeah, well, this guy who's dead, this floating skull, he was killed because he killed someone else. And the person who killed him will himself be killed as well. So some of the commentaries ask, where does it start? <laughs> who was the first guy who was drowned? Because the first guy who was drowned, obviously, if he was the first one to be drowned, didn't drown anyone himself. That's one of the questions of the commentaries. The commentaries have a lot of technical problems with this teaching. But in addition, let's, let's just look at the skull that Hillel is talking to. That skull, is that skull, is that skull guilty or not guilty? So Hillel himself is acknowledging that the skull is guilty. Why? You are drowned because you drowned others. Okay, but then if the skull was guilty, why is the person who kills the guilty person also guilty? And those who drown you themselves be drowned. I don't get it. If you kill a guilty man, what have you done wrong? What's wrong with killing the guilty person? If Hill is acknowledging that the skull deserved to die because it killed someone else, then why is the person who kills this skull themselves going to be drowned as well? And the answer here is that, yes, even if you kill a guilty man, that person needs to have died because they're guilty but they don't necessarily need to have died by your hand. Unless you are a court, unless you are a court of law that is dispensing judgment based upon a mandate either by the government or by the Torah to mete out punishment, it's not your job to kill the guilty party, even though in God's eyes they're guilty and they deserve to be drowned. Yes, this skull is drowned because they drowned someone else and they're guilty, but the person who did it said, I'm going to kill a person, and it was not their responsibility to do it, and therefore, they themselves are guilty. There's a national example of this. In chapter 15 of the book of Genesis, Abraham is told by God, you should surely know that your children, your descendants, will be foreigners in a foreign land. They'll be enslaved. They'll be tormented for 400 years. And when they leave, they leave, they'll leave with great wealth. And also the nation that will torment them, I will judge. 
God is telling Abraham, this is fixed. Your descendants will be slaves for 400 years. That part is fixed. Okay, so when you look at the Egyptians who did it, after all, they, they were doing the will of God. What is wrong? Why are they punished? They just fulfilled what God said has to be fulfilled. And the answer is yes. God said that the, the children of Israel, the children, the sons of Abraham will be persecuted for 400 years, but he didn't nominate the Egyptians to do it. And the Egyptians, it wasn't their job to be the emissaries of God. They weren't told by God to go do it. And therefore, their treatment from their perspective warrants them to be punished for their behavior. They're guilty for their actions, even though the result of the actions was desirous by God. So there's another question that is posed on this Mishnah, which again, why is such a strange Mishnah? The question was asked. There's a lot of people that we know are verified murderers and die peaceably in their bed. So what is this idea that Hill is saying? If you're a murderer, if you killed, you, you're, bar- you're drowned because some, you drowned someone else and the person who drowned you will themselves be drowned. In the end, you'll get exactly what you did. That's what Hill is saying. But we see that experience does not always bear it out. Sometimes people are indeed murderers and they get off seemingly scot-free because of some sort of technicality or because the 12 juries of the jury of their peers acquitted them or they weren't charged, they weren't found, whatever. So how is this idea even true? That's the question that was asked by all, so many of the commentaries asked the question. And there's two answers I think are important to share. One answer is that Hill is indeed saying that this is not necessarily something which is verifiable in our world. So if you actually look at his words, he says, those who drown, because you drowned others, they drowned you. And the end of those who drowned you will themselves be drowned. That word, visof, and the end. So some of the commentators understand that that's a reference to the afterlife, the end game. In the end, God will balance all books. Whereas even though in our world today, we don't see how everything shakes out. We don't see how people get exactly what they, people's output is exactly commensurate to their input. But in the end, all will be balanced. That's one answer. Second answer is that there's the idea of reincarnation. Some, some commentaries want to read into this teaching the idea of reincarnation. That even though someone won't necessarily get their punishment for their murder, for example, in this iteration of self, but they'll come back and get murdered a second time, and that will be payback. Again, th- that's why this this idea is somewhat a little bit hazy, and maybe this is why Rashi says uh, that there are some people that t- have a tradition to skip over this Mishnah.